Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the religions of light and love in Iran. I'm referring to the Manichaean and Mastikite religious movements. With me is Jason Reza Georgiani, who is the author of many books, including Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel, Folklore, and Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Jeffrey. Now, we've talked about the religions of light and love in our um, title for this interview, but I think it's fair to let our viewers know that an important part of this discussion will have to do with the suppression of those religions. Yes, we're basically going to be discussing the two great heresies of the Sasanian period. The Sasanian Empire is the third great Iranian empire, and um, it's an empire that, as we're going to discuss, for the first time institutionalizes Zoroastrianism as a state orthodoxy. And these two movements, the Manichaean movement and the Mazdakite movement, are the two great heterodox uh, spiritual uh, movements of the era. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's start with money and the Manichaeism. This is a movement that uh, actually spread as, as far as China to the east and Europe to the west. It is. But, you know, before we get to Mani, uh, mm-hmm. we need to set the stage to some extent in terms of Sasanian Iran. Okay. Um, because, you know, the, the ap- state apparatus that winds up uh, severely persecuting Manichaeism, and before that, the state apparatus that actually endorses Ma- Mani and allows him to carry out his missionary activity is that of the Sasanian Empire. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose it's useful to point out, as we did in our previous interview, that the, the prior dynasty, the uh, Parthian dynasty uh, was largely uh, or even explicitly Mithraic. Yes. So, um, the founder of the Sasanid dynasty is from a hereditary priestly clan. He's from a hereditary priesthood in Pars or Persia proper, um, the the capital district of the old, um, ceremonial capital district of the old Achaemenid Empire. So, Ardashir Babakan thinks that this Parthian Mithraism is contaminated with too many foreign influences. That's his name, Ardashir Babakan. Ardashir, from the line of Babak. Ardashir Babakan, or Papakan is another way of pronouncing it. And uh, he sees Parthian Mithraism as um, too uh, infused with foreign influences, you know, the, the Parthians rose up after a long period of Hellenistic colonization of Iran. And from Adashir's perspective, there, there are too many Greek influences in Parthian Mithraism. We've discussed in, a, in, a, in another uh, conversation um, how the cult of Mithras and the symbolism of Perseus were amal- amalgamated with one, one another. Uh, so he's also looking at the battles that are being fought between Parthian Iran and Rome. You know, the two great superpowers of Ardashir's time 
were Parthian Iran and the Roman Empire. And uh, roundabout when Ardashir uh, was uh, rising up as the leader of the priesthood in Pars, the Romans were waging some very successful military campaigns against the Parthians. And Ardashir, for some reason, uh, held the Romans responsible for the Alexandrian conquest of Iran. So, you know, I mean, it's true that the Romans valorized Alexander, but uh, Ardashir takes this to the level where he wants to reconquer all of the lands that were part of the Achaemenid Empire from the Romans and force the Romans to pay war reparations for the damage that was done to Iran hundreds of years earlier by Alexander and his generals. So uh, this is a man who uh, has, I would have to say, a puritanical cast of mind. He wants to uh, cleanse Iran of everything that he perceives to be foreign. And so he uh, starts to uh, organize a rebellion against the Parthian dynasty and since the Parthian dynasty was a feudal system and relatively decentralized, he's able to go province to province uh, and ultimately um, fight a successful battle against uh, Artabanus IV or Ardavan and capture the capital of the Parthian dynasty and enthrone himself as the first monarch of the Sassanid. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned there's some rather well-known illustrations of the battle between these two figures. Yeah, the really peculiar thing about these carvings that show the both of them on horseback facing one another, Ardashir and Ardavan, the Parthian, is that you know you have uh, you know Ardavan the the, the uh, you have Ardashir Babakan's horse treading over Ahriman, and uh, in this carving, Ahura Mazda is identified with the god Zeus, which uh, suggests to my mind that the kind of Zoroastrianism that this man is about to institutionalize as the state religion of Sassanid Iran has been badly perverted because if anyone were to compare the Ahura Mazda of the Gothas of Zarathustra to the Greek pantheon, uh, they would identify Prometheus as the closest analogical figure. In other words, the great rebel against Zeus. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Ahura Mazda is being identified with the most... Uh, a patriarchal, paternalistic, authoritarian figure in Greek religion doesn't bode well for the kind of uh, theocratic uh, orthodoxy that's about to be established. Mm-hmm. So, uh, on the other hand, Ardashir is his horse is trampling on Ariman, who is the uh, devil in the Zoroastrian right. theology. Right, and and so my question would be this: if uh, Ahur Mazda, or Or Mazda, as they called him in the Persian of this period, if Or Mazda is Zeus, who is that Ahriman yeah. if it's not Prometheus? There's a kind of inversion that's taken place here, mm-hmm. which, uh, as I said, um, uh, you know, heralds the kind of persecution that we're about to see unfold throughout the Sasanian period. Be- because uh, once Zoroastrianism became the official state religion, no longer uh, rebelling against some other official uh, religion, it acquired the trappings of power and used them. And uh, so Ardashir uh, recruits two uh, close aides in his project of institutionalizing Zoroastrianism. One is a bureaucrat by the name of Tansar, and the other is a high priest uh, called Kartir. And um, 
Tansar and Kartir develop a catechism and uh, dogmatic uh, orthodoxy for the religion, which hadn't existed up to that time. I mean, first of all, you know, there were all kinds of texts in the Parthian period that counted for the Avesta, or the sacred scriptures, all kinds of texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, in a, in a manner very much akin to what later happens with the canonization of the New Testament under Constantine, they exclude many texts and they approve only a, a select subset as the Orthodox canon, or the, the Sassanid Avesta, uh, and they also lay out clear guidelines for how these scriptures are to be interpreted. Cartier, in the inscriptions that he makes at the time, goes even further, calling for the extermination of certain types of heretics. And he includes in the list of heretics that he intends to eradicate the Shramanas, or Buddhists, who, you know, as anyone who knows the least bit about Buddhism will, will, will recognize, were pacifists. Mm-hmm. So here is a theocrat, a high priest being empowered by Ardashir Babakan to go and exterminate, you know, some pacifistic Buddhists in the eastern part of the empire. Ardashir expanded Iran's territory in the west in 22 successful uh, offensive military campaigns against Rome. And he also marched on the east. Mm -hmm. He marched on the Kushans, who were fellow Iranians, but were patrons of Mahayana Buddhism in northern India. And so, you know, he had a whole territory in the east where Kartir, the high priest empowered by him could go after Buddhists and persecute them. So here's a man who comes from a priestly family, but he's obviously a military genius. He is. Uh, and, um, you know, maybe he is the one who establishes the paradigm of the crusade, uh, of, of the holy war in the name of a religious orthodoxy. Um, because this is taking place, you know, centuries before that happens with, with the Christianity and many centuries before it happens in the case of Islam. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking now about the, uh, uh, period, if I recall, um, two, three hundred years, uh, in the, what we call the common era, AD. That's right. Uh, I do have to say that, you know, Ardashir Babakan isn't given nearly enough credit in the history of political leadership. I mean, the man was a genius. Mm. Uh, whatever moral judgment one might pass on him, he created a tremendous state apparatus. I mean, uh, a centralized military force. He integrated a state bureaucracy in a hierarchical fashion uh, that endured ultimately for hundreds of years. The Sasanian Empire was a very long-lived institution. Um, and so, you know, Ardashir isn't usually given the kind of credit that Marcus Aurelius is, or, uh, I don't know, that, uh, people give to, uh, uh well, I mean, I, Alexander was a disaster. If you want to compare Alexander to Ardashir, Alexander's empire didn't even survive his own lifetime. It was split up amongst his generals. And so, you know, if you compare Ardashir to some of the other great political leaders of history, he's definitely amongst the most sophisticated and competent statesmen. Mm -hmm. But he also was the first authoritarian theocrat in history. And uh, in the name of Zoroastrianism. In the name of Zoroastrianism. Mm -hmm. Or his particular version of it. Yes. And from the start... There were people who were calling him out on what they believed were perversions of Zarathustra's message. And among the, the groups that uh, adopted Zarathustra as a prophetic figure that revered Zarathustra as 
um, someone preaching a divine message, but who didn't at all agree with Ardashir Babakan's interpretation of Zarathustra's teachings, were uh, the Manichaeans, the followers mm -hmm. of, of Mani. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, Mani, who um, was a contemporary of Ardashir Babakan, by the time he starts to uh, expound his teaching, uh, benefits from the patronage of Ardashir's successor, Ardashir's son and successor, Shapur I, breaks with his father's puritanical theocratic project. I think partly because Shapur inherited an empire that now included lots of Buddhists in the East and included pagans and uh, early Christians in the West. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so he was thinking of unifying a multi-religious and multi-ethnic empire mm -hmm. and was looking for some kind of an ideology that would do that. And here was Mani, who was preaching a religion that would synthesize the message of Zoroastrianism in Iran, of Buddhism in the East, and of Gnostic Christianity in the West. Mm -hmm. The three great world teachers, according to Mani, were Zarathustra, Buddha, and Christ. So he's attempting to uh, create a, a syncretic uh, world religion. Yes, and he was very explicitly conscious uh, of this mission. Uh, Mani described himself as the paraclete, the expected Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, and also as the Maitreya Buddha, the expected Buddha of the future. He is the first person to have applied to himself this uh, title of Seal of the Prophets, which later is, is used by Muhammad uh, to suggest uh, a person who culminates all of Revelation mm -hmm. and who delivers the, the, the final and most complete spiritual message. So uh, Mani is very explicitly aware of um, attempting to create for the first time one world religion, and he's backed by Shapur the Great in his uh, wide-ranging uh, missionary activity, which takes him as far east as northern India and into um, the northwest corner of China. So Shapur is no longer uh, advocating the state religion that his father inaugurated. No, and he got so close to Mani that uh, several members of Shapur's family explicitly converted to Manichaeism, and Mani was the personal doctor of uh, the Shahanshah Shapur. So, um, you know, this was a man with the, the most intimate access to the royal court on, in the time of Shapur. So he's a religious philosopher, he's a doctor, and uh, you've already told me he, he's also had quite a reputation as an artist. Mani was best remembered among the um, medieval uh, scholars in, in Iranian history, you know, in the early Islamic period, as a painter rather than as a religious prophet. Mani appears to have been the originator of the Persian miniature painting tradition, which he took with him all the way to China. And then later in Iranian history, when the Mongols uh, invade Iran, they bring this tradition back into Iran, uh, and it's revived in Iran. But the miniature painting tradition was inaugurated by Mani, who um, he he had this uh, particular manuscript called Arjang, or Icon, that was full of like Hieronymus Bosch type uh, crazy uh, cosmological imagery with demons and all kinds of supernatural beings that were painted uh, with, you know, cat's hair, fine brushes uh, in a miniature style. And besides being a masterful painter, Mani was also a calligrapher who invented the most accurate uh, Persian alphabet, 
that had ever been devised up to that time. The Pahlavi script that was being used by the Sassanids that had been used by the Parthians uh, did not adequately express the full range of sounds in the language. And Mani invented a script, the Ma- it's known as the Manichaean script, that has a letter for every single sound in the language. So it was extremely accurate. And so you have this guy who is, is an inventor of an alphabet. He's a masterful artist. He uh, is a visionary religious leader and also is a practitioner of healing arts. Clearly a, a genius of his time. Mm-hmm. And now, the, the faith that he developed, Manichaeism, uh, differed from uh, the Zoroastrian tradition in several respects. In the Zoroastrian uh, theology, um, this world is the creation of a good god. It's, it's often referred to as the good creation, the creation of Ahura Mazda. And while it's subject to assault from Ahriman and demonic forces, the physical world is essentially considered good and, and a divine creation. Whereas uh, Mani is a radical Gnostic dualist. He thinks that the material world is entirely corrupt, that basically uh, archons who serve Ahriman have fashioned this material world by parasitically preying upon beings of light that pre-existed the creation of the material world. And the task of salvation in Manichaeism is to free the particles of light that have been entrapped in uh, the material world by the forces of darkness. Mm-hmm. So you have this emphasis on two distinct principles, Dobon, the two principles, light and darkness, and on what the Manichaeans called the three times, the time when there was a pure realm of light uh, entirely distinct from the forces of darkness in the abyss, then the period after the forces of darkness have assaulted the realm of light and have trapped beings of light in a parasitic fashion, devoured them and trapped them inside the material creation, and then a future coming epoch when the material world will be purified and the particles of light will be uh, freed from being ensconced in, in matter. I presume this is why yeah, monarchism is sometimes thought of as a religion of light. Exactly. It's a religion about liberating the light. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Manichaeism features uh, beliefs that are also current in, in Buddhism. Like, for example, reincarnation. Uh, you know, it was believed that the process of extricating oneself from the material world, uh, freeing one's light body from being trapped by the, this uh, mechanism um, engineered by the archons as a process that takes many lifetimes. Mm. So one aspect of, of Buddhism that was incorporated into Manichaeism, given that Mani recognized Buddha as one of the world teachers, is the Buddhist idea of rebirth. Mm-hmm. So Shapur, the, the great, he's regarded as one of the great emperors of, of, of Persia has chosen Mani as his uh, religious voice of religion. Which for- is very bizarre, frankly, mm-hmm. because the most famous image of Shapur, the great that we have, is uh, a carving of him on horseback with uh, Emperor Valerian, Caesar Valerian of Rome, kneeling at his knees under the hooves of Shapur's horses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a carving that depicts the great victory of Shapur over Caesar Valerian, uh, carving at Nakhshirostam in Iran, near the tombs of the, Hakim, uh, of the Achaemenid kings. Mm-hmm. 
And so Shapur was a great conqueror. He is the man who expanded the Sassanid Empire to the furthest extent uh, that it went in um, encompassing once again all of the lands that had been ruled by the Achaemenids. And so you have here a world conqueror on the one hand backing a religious prophet who believes that the material world is governed by a hierarchy of evil archons, uh, a, a view that would incline one to think of the powers and principalities of this earth as evil and uh, of power as inherently corrupting. So it's, it's a very paradoxical union between this prophet and this emperor. Mm-hmm. Well, it almost seems as if Shapur is trying to say, yeah, I'm evil. <laughs> Take it or leave it. <laughs> this is who I am. Uh, I don't think so. Uh-huh. I, um, I see in Shapur a fascinating uh, character who is at the heart of the highest political power that's achievable on earth, Mm -hmm. but who in his heart of hearts is a Gnostic. And I'm reminded of this passage in Nietzsche's Will to Power, where Nietzsche describes the image of the Roman Caesar with Christ's soul. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of person that Shapur was, someone who in an incredible way was attempting to use maximal authority and uh, capacity for military conquest in the name of a benevolent consciousness raising and in the furtherance of a quest for enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Well, Mani was consciously trying to build a world religion, and his influence uh, extended for thousands of miles from China into Europe. Uh, It in a previous interview, you and I talked about how the uh, Achaemenid uh, emperors also seem to have this vision of, of a world empire with a world religion. Yes, and so in a way, Mani's picking up on their project and furthering it and doing so in a much more explicitly conscious way, mm-hmm. or Mani and Shapur are together. Mm-hmm. And when Shapur dies, uh, unfortunately, Mani is uh, submitted to, uh, to the, to the you know, uh, Mani winds up at the mercy of these authoritarian theocrats that had been set up by Ardashir Babakan. Mm-hmm. So, Shapur dies, and uh, he's ultimately succeeded by his eldest son, Bahram. And uh, Mani, around about that time, successfully converted one of the regional governors in Mesopotamia. And uh, this was seen as a crossing of a red line. You know, he, the guy is actually now successfully converting regional governors of the Sasanid Empire to his faith. And he's summoned to the royal court and Bahram is is uh, drunk with his barbarian Scythian wife on his arm, and he receives Mani uh, by shouting at him, you know, I'm not very pleased with you. And Kartir, that high priest that had been uh, empowered by Ardashir, is also there. Uh, so he's awaiting the arrival of uh, Mani. And um, the two of them basically dig into Mani, and, uh, you know, uh, chastise him for uh, corrupting the imperial officials and mm. so on and so forth. And Mani then pulls out a letter that had been written by Shapur, by Bahram's father, uh, praising him and, you know, endorsing his prophetic mission. 
And, you know, Bahram just can't take this. He can't, he can't take being chastised by his father from beyond the grave. And he orders Mani, much to the delight of Kartir, who's standing there watching, he orders Mani to be thrown in the dungeon. And they, they put heavy, uh, manacles on him and they intend to torture him to death. But as the Manichaeans believe, he separated his soul from his body, uh, released his soul from his, his body and expired before they had the opportunity to torture him. So these frustrated, uh, you know, inquisitorial theocrats proceed to dismember his corpse and publicly display it. Mm. That sounds rather gruesome. Yeah. Uh, but the man's teaching survives uh, his life and in uh, geographical regions as remote as China, from which we've, we've gotten the majority of the Manichaean texts that, that scholars pour over today, uh, and as far to the west as the south of, uh, south of France, both the Bogomil Gnostic heresy and the Cathar Gnostic movement of medieval Europe are Manichaean in origin. And this is interesting because, you know, the Roman Catholic Church invented the apparatus of the Holy Inquisition precisely to exterminate these two heresies. And then, because it was so successful, applied it later to Jews and Muslims and Protestants and so forth. Um, so... Even St. Augustine had been a Manichaean before converting to Christianity. Yes, he had been, and, and he was the first one to write against the quote-unquote Manichaeans, uh, having been one. Mm -hmm. And this category of Manichae became basically an epithet applied to all kinds of heretics in the Middle Ages, which shows how powerful Manichaeism still was mm -hmm. in medieval Europe, that the brand of Manichae would stick to every type of, of heretic and, you know, putative devil worshiper and so forth. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like the way we use the term Kleenex today for all tissue. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so that, this is the first of the two religions of light and love, uh, we should also talk about the Mazdakite movement. So, at the time of Ardashir Babakan, going back to the founder of the Sasanid dynasty, I had mentioned that there were people who called him out on, you know, uh, perverting the teaching of Zarathustra. And the most dangerous group of, of such people were not the Manichaeans. They were... Uh, they were the followers of a man called Zardusht, in other words, Zarathustra in Middle Persian, uh, Zardusht Khuragan. And this Zarathustra was living in the same province as Ardashir Babakan, Pars. So you could call him Zarathustra of Persia, the mm -hmm. second Zarathustra. And this Zarathustra of Persia uh, elaborated a doctrine known as uh, Durust Din, or the just religion, the just religion or uh, the just conscience. And according to um, the teaching of, of Zarathustra Khuragan, or Zarathustra of Persia, the, the human mind and, and, and heart are assailed by five demonic forces. Envy, need, uh, or, 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 uh, or, or greed, envy, uh, need, lust, uh, wrath, and vengeance. Mm -hmm. So... And sometimes wrath is also called anger. Mm. And so you have these five demonic forces uh, assailing the human uh, uh, heart and, and mind. And they are spawned by this primordial desire or concupiscence called Oz. And Oz is hypostatized as a feminine figure, a mm. feminine demoness, like arch demoness, mm -hmm. who spawns these five demons. 
Now, these five demons seem to, in some ways, to each individually embody a, a part of what we might think of as Ahriman. Yes. And so, um, in their theology, Oz works in league with Ahriman. In fact, Oz is responsible for the birth of Ahriman. See, uh, what happens is the primordial god of time, uh, like the Greek Kronos, um, who's called Zurvan in Persian, is conceived of as an androgynous deity who's pregnant both with Ormazd, in other words, Ahura Mazda in Middle Persian, both with Ormazd and with Ahriman. But, and Ormazd is supposed to be born first and supposed to be the crown prince of, of the cosmic god of, of time. But because Zorvan is seduced by this concupiscence, by Oz, by this archdemonist, mm. Zorvan miscarries and Ahriman is born first. Mm. So in a way, this archdemonist delivers Ahriman. Yeah. And because he's the firstborn, the crown prince, as it were, the realm, in other words, the cosmos, is handed over to his control. So our world is delivered over to evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ormazd is only subsequently born to, to perform a remedial salvation of the world and its deliverance from evil. And what this really symbolizes on a psychological, archetypal psychology level is that God is primordially unconscious. And so this uh, concupiscence is actually the, the voidness within God, the, the emptiness that needs to be filled within the nature of God itself. And... Uh, as a result of that lack or deficiency, it's often described in those terms in the Pahlavi text, the lack or deficiency within God or mm-hmm. the Godhead, evil is expressed first into the world. So God is in the first instance evil, and only over the course of time, a finite time, does the infinite God become good. Mm-hmm. This is what it is meant by Ormaz being born after Ahriman. Mm-hmm. So God, you might say there's an evolution of the Godhead. And so actually, in the, um, in the, what becomes the Mazdakite theology, uh, it's not just a question of the salvation of this world or of human beings in this world from the assault of these five demons spawned by Oz. It's also a question of the salvation of God. Mm-hmm. God is becoming good over the course of time. So the teachings of this person, the second Zarathustra, the Zarathustra of Persia, gets taken up by a a group of people who come to be known as Mazdakites. So around uh, the 490s, uh, around about 500, uh, a man by the name Mazdak, or the wise one, is appointed prime minister by one of the Sasanid kings, Kavod I. And uh, so Kavod appoints Mazdak, and Mazdak is a follower of this sect. Mm-hmm. And he gets a rubber stamp from Kavod to introduce Mazdakite doctrine as state policy. Mm-hmm. And in particular, there are two radically revolutionary policies that Mazdak uh, uses the authority of Kavod to um, uh, institutionalize. And these are the abolition of private property and of uh, monogamous marriage. The idea being that the way to combat the demons of, um, of greed and uh, envy 
is to abolish private property because people slit each other's throats over the the control of material goods mm -hmm. and and you know avaricious seeking of of material goods and so if property were communal uh you know people would overcome uh, envy and and greed and so forth mm -hmm. and then it's a very utopian ideal yeah and ra and the wrath that's expressed in in warfare and you know blood feuds and so on and so forth is often over property and if it's not it's over women mm -hmm. so the way to deal with you know lust uh, uh you know really destructive lust according to mazdak was to uh, abolish monogamy mm -hmm. and establish communal marriages mm -hmm. And I think what was also uh, going on here was a deliberate attempt to destroy aristocratic bloodlines so as to disestablish what by that time was becoming a hereditary aristocracy controlling large feudal estates mm -hmm. where, you know, uh, there were f full granaries uh, while certain people were starving and, you know, large harems had been assembled by some of these feudal landlords Um uh, whereas, you know, uh, so they would go into villages, small villages, and take women back to their harems and so forth. Uh, and, and, you know, other poorer men had trouble finding women to marry. So it was addressing certain social conditions of the time as well, but it had a deeper basis in the metaphysics and, and epistemology of this movement of Zarathustra of Persia. Well, at the same time, if you've got uh, a form of Zoroastrianism as the state religion, this seems like, uh, once again, as in the case of Bonnie, the emperor is giving free reign to a, a religion which is challenging the official uh, state view of things. It is. And, of course, you know, the followers of Zarathustra of Persia claimed to be the uh, the ones uh, properly interpreting the teachings of the original Zarathustra, they contested the interpretation of Ardashir Baba Khan. Yeah. So this movement had gone on for hundreds of years in the shadows before Mazdak becomes prime minister. And, you know, the shocking thing is that Mazdak's experiment at this radical social revolution doesn't go on for five years or ten years it goes on for an entire generation. And there are children being raised in Mazdakite communes to the point where, you know, the Orthodoxy are writing tractates against the Mazdakites saying no one can tell who's anyone's child anymore uh, because there's so much promiscuous, uh, you know, intercourse. Mm -hmm. And so... At least they were allowed to voice their criticisms. Well, yes. And one of the uh, explicit points of the Mazdakite doctrine was that although they had certain beliefs, I mean, they had their own theology. They had a certain, you know, a theology that, for example, included the idea that um, in any given historical epoch, there is an exoteric form that religion takes. Mm -hmm. But then there's an esoteric teaching that doesn't change over the course of time and that will only be revealed at the end of history. And this esoteric teaching is packaged in a way that's appropriate to the society and to the understanding of a particular time and place. So, you know, they had certain definite religious ideas. Another one was vegetarianism, mm -hmm. uh, which they shared in common with the Manichaeans mm -hmm. on the basis, again, of a common belief in reincarnation. They wouldn't eat animals because they believed that sometimes human beings were reborn into the bodies mm -hmm. of animals. Mm -hmm. So they had a, a specific theology, but they allowed anyone to interpret scriptures in whatever way they wished, mm -hmm. as long as they didn't harm anyone else. Mm -hmm. So this idea, you know, do what thou wilt uh, and, and harm ye none, uh, that really epitomizes the Mazdakite mm -hmm. teaching. 
they were able to get away with this for an entire generation. And I think that, you know, uh, the orthodoxy kept waiting for this uh, Mazdakite social experiment to implode and for them to come and step into the vacuum. Um, and eventually they realized that it wasn't going to. I mean, you know, you had the Byzantine Empire as a very serious military rival of the Sassanids to the West constantly uh, attacking the western frontier of the empire. And you would think, with a social experiment this radical ongoing in the core of Iran, the, the Byzantines would have been able to conquer the country, but they didn't. The state mm. held. So whatever Mazdek was doing, whatever the government of Kavad was doing, it was successfully holding together the Sassanid state while radically restructuring the society. Mm. So radically restructuring the society that, I mean, for a western mind to wrap its, it, itself around this, I think... Uh, you know, uh, the analogy is appropriate to imagine the Carpocratian Gnostics, the most radically libertine Gnostics in Alexandria, convincing a Caesar in Rome to become a Carpocratian, and then not only personally adhere to that faith, but to attempt to institutionalize Carpocratian Gnosticism across the Roman Empire, which is insane. And this happened in Sassanid Iran for an entire generation mm -hmm. until finally the orthodoxy carries out a coup against Kavod. Um, it's a failed coup. Kavod uh, uses a foreign uh, mercenary force, the Heftalites, to recapture his throne. But he's sufficiently shaken by this coup attempt that he decides to betray Ma uh, Mazdak and the, and the Mazdakites. I see. So um, when Kavod returns to the, the capital, he summons Mazdak to the royal court for a so-called debate, kind of kangaroo court that's been set up with the Zoroastrian Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And Ma Mazdak now has been the prime minister for some 30 years. Yeah. And he, he goes back into the palace that he's very familiar with and... Uh, he engages in this so-called debate with the Zoroastrian Orthodoxy where they, they basically hurl accusations at him for destroying the aristocracy and, you know, for creating a situation where no one knows who, who, who anyone's child is, what, you know, uh, parental lineage children have anymore, and uh, that, you know, he's perverting the minds of, of the people and sending them all to hell, and that he's invented basically a demonic religion. And so he loses this debate and at that point, he's led out by the arm into the uh, palace gardens. And uh, unbeknownst to him, before he arrived for this debate, his inner circle had already been rounded up, and uh, which in included men and women. Women enjoyed a high place of leadership in the Mazdakite movement, mm -hmm. um, including Mazdak's wife, Khoramia, who some people believe succeeded him and took the movement underground after it was persecuted. So he's led out to the palace gardens, and he's horrified to see that his inner circle, his closest comrades, have been all buried upside down with their legs kicking in the air so that it appears like a, a garden full of human trees. And the point that the orthodoxy are trying to make here is that uh, this is the end result of his aspiration to create heaven on earth. That, you know, Mazdak, you wanted to make earth into a paradise. Here's your planted garden of paradise. And um, after witnessing this horrific spectacle, they take Mazdak, they bind his hands and his feet and hang him upside down from a gallows and shoot him through with arrows. 
well, it's a rather uh, tortuous experience all the way around. But I guess in in that era, th- that kind of behavior wasn't uh, so uncommon. Well, it gets worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, after this incident, Khosro takes over the empire. Uh, he's often described as Khosro uh, Anushiravan, Khosro of the Immortal Soul, or Anushiravan Dodgar, uh, Anushiravan the Just. Uh, but the just in this case meant reinstitutionalizing Zoroastrian orthodoxy. And so the first thing that Khosro does when he comes to power is he issues an order for the execution of a hundred thousand Mazdakite leaders. Hmm. So scale to the population of our time, we're talking about an execution of millions of leaders of the Mazdakite movement. And he also scours the empire for their religious texts, goes into private libraries and, uh, you know, publicly burns their zans, their interpretations of the Avesta in, uh, in bonfires. So there, there are vast book burnings that, uh, have left us with no primary texts from the Mazdakite movement. So it would seem to me that the lesson uh, from this period of history is that the establishment of religions and of love and light uh, can possibly lead to new inquisitions. Most definitely. And, you know, the, the idea at the core of the Mazdakite theology was uh, the recognition of, of evil as part of the Godhead and of uh, the, the progressive self-consciousness of divinity. You know, so you, you have an unconscious God who over the course of history becomes increasingly self-conscious. And um, what's actually happening in the, the Sasanian period with these persecutions is a kind of uh, ra- extreme repression of the dark side of the human psyche, uh, which then uh, is also going to result in an, in an unconscious society mm. and in, in the vulnerability of that society to the violent return of these repressed forces from out of the unconscious, which in fact happens, you know, in the form of thousands of sword-wielding Arabs mm. who you know, stampede across the Sassanid Empire and conquer Iran in the name of Islam only uh, decades later. Well, after uh, Iran has already assassinated uh, 100,000 Mazdakites, uh, uh, the Iranians are already turning against themselves before the Muslims uh, came in, it seems. Yes, yeah, so uh, we had in the Sasanian period two large-scale heterodox religious movements that, by the way, both left a lasting legacy after the Islamic conquest of Iran, uh, which can be the subject of another discussion. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they survived the Islamic conquest shows how deeply entrenched they were in Iranian society. And so this edifice of Sasanian state orthodoxy, of uh, Zoroastrian orthodoxy in the Sasanian period, was created through the repression of both Manichaeism and Mazdakism. And so, as you said, we have here a society that's deeply divided against itself on a spiritual level, and that consequently, for all of its military prowess, uh, was, I think, uh, rendered profoundly vulnerable to being conquered by exactly those demonic unconscious forces that the Mazdakites were seeking to address with their doctrine of liberation.
it's uh, really quite a lesson. I, you, I would say so. When yeah. you think about it, and you've also pointed out in a previous interview, I think we did a year ago on the Gnostics and the relationship uh, of Gnosticism to uh, Mazdaikite uh, faith that th- these Mazdakites became the uh, strongest uh, resistance to uh, Arab rule in uh, Iran and uh, also eventually became uh, integrated with the Shia. Yeah, the most Truth. militant um, partisan movement that resisted the Arabian Caliphate in uh, the 800s in Iran uh, were the uh, the Khurram Dinan, the followers of Babak Khurram Din who nominally described themselves as Shia, uh, but who were Mazdakites. And so, and one, uh, etym- one, uh, etymological, uh, explanation for the name Khurramdinan, Khurramdin movement, is that it comes from the name of Mazdak's wife, Khurramia, who led the movement when it had to go underground, mm-hmm. uh, in the late Sasanian period. The, uh, Khurramdinan, who resisted the caliphate, kept the same symbol as the Mazdakite movement. They raised the red flag in protest against the caliphate. So not only is the Mazdakite movement the first large-scale communistic revolution in history, it also had as its symbol the same flag that becomes emblematic of the communist international in the period of Marx. And I don't think this is a coincidence, considering the fact that we know Karl Marx suggested Persian as the language of the future uh, utopian international communist society. Mm. So Marx, as a, as a really uh, erudite scholar of human history, and as certainly someone who, uh, you know, carefully examined the various socialistic movements of the past, probably encountered the Mazdakite movement and adopted its red banner as the emblem of the international. Well, uh, it's amazing uh, in the course of these discussions to see how influential these various Iranian uh, movements have been throughout the whole world. And uh, the irony is, I thought I had a pretty good education growing up in the United States, but almost none of this was covered in my education. Well, it's a hidden history, and I think that it's been hidden for for very deliberate and and uh, good reasons, good mm-hmm. reasons from the perspective of the people who in our time still think like Ardashir Babakan. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason Reza Georgiani, once again, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Uh, I think uh, uh, this is like a, a rich treasure treasure trove of uh, information. Uh, people can draw many many different conclusions from it. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much for being with me. It's been a pleasure, Jeffrey. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.